Hello, Great Minds! It's Friday, and that means it's time for Drinks with Great Minds in History, and another round with the Declaration of Independence, this time with America's Jewish Patriots. So, welcome to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Mr. DGMH, otherwise known as Zach DeBacco, and on this episode, we are going to explore a little bit of history tied to the Declaration of Independence that I had never heard of until someone on the DGMH Facebook group brought it to my attention. The story of some secret Jewish translation of the Declaration of Independence. Well, sort of. Something quite appealing when you hear it, but it isn't exactly the story. And the real story is even more interesting. And surprisingly, I found myself down the usual beaver hole. I found myself finding a founder, well, an early patriot at least, that I had never heard of. And I got a chance to learn a lot about the contribution of America's Jewish population to American independence. You know, well, of course, you don't. I didn't either. But every year on Memorial Day, Jewish congregations throughout New York City gather to pay tribute to those Jews, I should say Jewish Americans, honestly some of the very first to hold the title, that served in the name of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all, most all, Americans back in 1776. It's worth noting that there were several Jewish patriots with amazing stories that I don't plan to tell here. Chaim Solomon, Abigail Minnis, Francis Salvador, Sexius Sheftal, among others, quickly and frequently showed up in my research, all with fascinating stories of their own. But today we are just going to examine one, and quickly. I can't say that I have ever given these forgotten patriots a moment of time. Hell, I didn't even know they existed. But like so many others, Jews saw the ideals of the revolution as a path towards equality and freedom that they were denied by an archaic constitutional monarchy and centuries of stereotypes and oppression. To toast these forgotten patriots, I will be drinking a Mazel Tov cocktail. And just to be clear, that's a Mazel Tov, not Molotov cocktail. Nothing going to explode in my face here. Just mix three ounces of Manischewitz kosher grape juice, I mean wine, sorry it's a little hard to tell the difference, and a shot and a half of your favorite gin. I used Bloom because that's what I had, but any gin could work. Then add a twist of lime, make it like you would an old fashioned, and you'll have yourself a tasty little kosher cocktail. Manischewitz wines are actually made under the quote strict rabbinical supervision of the Union of Orthodox Jewish Congregations of America, and it comes in at 11% APV and only 4 carbs. Neat. Well, let's get to it. But first, it's some history for you, a reason to drink for me. It's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. Now, like I said, this gem of a story originated from a DGMH Facebook group discussion. Shout out to listener Mitchell, who brought this story to my attention in the first place. And if you are missing out on those awesome conversations, then join the group now and enjoy these fun discussions. And don't forget that we release tons of bonus content each month over on the DGMH Patreon page. So the way this story was presented to me was pretty simple. A quick conversation about a forgotten piece of history, the one we're going to tell today. Something like that there was some sort of untranslatable document that was found on a ship that was seized by the British, possibly a lost translation of the Declaration itself. 
Also on board the ship was an English copy of the Declaration of Independence and a mysterious document written in an unknown language. Well, actually, that's not fucking true at all. The mystery language was actually known to many in Britain, but not the idiot that found the letter. Instead of doing any sort of research whatsoever, it was just decided that this must have been some newly developed, very complex, dare I say, unbreakable American secret code. It wasn't. It was Yiddish. One author for the Jerusalem Post notes, convinced that the rebelling colonists had devised an ingenious wartime code, they sent the Yiddish missive to the attention of codebreakers who were never able to decipher the damn thing. Which is fucking hilarious. I just picture this old British guy sitting around a table completely baffled and mystified by this amazing American code that was utterly unbreakable. And the entire time, just about any English Jew could have deciphered the text. But who was this ingenious coder that might have given even World War II Navajo code talkers a run for their money? None other than the German-born Jewish immigrant of Philadelphia, Jonas Phillips. And down the beaver hole we go. Jonas Phillips was about as interesting a patriot as they come, perfect for this short story, and as forgotten a patriot as Governor the Whalebone Morris. Jonas Phillips was born in Germany in 1736, emigrating to America as an indentured servant in 1759. He worked off his debts quickly in South Carolina and eventually moved to New York City in the same year. In the 1760s, Phillips found himself in Philadelphia. There, he and his wife Rebecca had 21 children together. Fuck. I mean, one sounds hard enough. 21 sounds impossible. Of their descendants, one actually went on to become the governor of South Carolina during the Reconstruction era, and even more interesting was that Philip's grandson, Uriah Phillips Levi, was the first Jewish Commodore in the U.S. Navy. And this was even cooler. Levi actually bought Thomas Jefferson's Monticello estate just eight years after his death, preserving the estate for posterity's sake. His family actually owned the estate until 1923 when it was purchased by the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, who still controls the estate today. But what about the super-secret Yiddish code, which again was just a Jewish-American writing to his friend in Europe in Yiddish? So the great and mysterious Yiddish code, what did it actually say? Well, not much. The great mystery code was basically just a letter to a friend with some minor mentions of business. What is noteworthy is that Phillips, obviously taken by the ideals of the Declaration, felt compelled to send his friend a copy of the Declaration itself. He was, however, quite hopeful of America's chances in the impending crisis. He notes in the letter, quote, The war will make all England bankrupt. The Americans have an army of 100,000 followers, and the English only have 25,000 and some ships. The enclosed is a declaration of the whole country. How it will all end, only the blessed God knows. Phillips no doubt meant to include himself when he said the whole country. Of course, Phillips is underestimating Britain a little, as those, quote, some ships were quite problematic for Americans. And he also overestimates the strength of the American forces, forces that were always teetering on the edge of collapse. But it is nice to see this sort of hope in a patriot. Years after the revolution, Phillips would actually go on to write George Washington himself. Phillips wrote to members of the Constitutional Convention in 1787 calling for full guaranteed equality and protections for American Jews, saying, quote, The Jews have been true and faithful Whigs, and during the late contest with England, they have been foremost in aiding and assisting the states with their lives and fortunes. They have supported the cause, they have bravely fought and bled for liberty which they cannot enjoy. Quite the statement to make to George Washington himself. 
Despite Jewish contributions as soldiers, financiers, and merchants during the war, many Christian patriots hoped to see a sort of religious status quo return after the revolution's close. But it was in fact in America that Jews would find their religious freedoms guaranteed by the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. In a time when it was still virtually illegal to be an open and practicing Catholic in Great Britain. Aside from the unbreakable and unused Yiddish code, I found myself wondering more and more about the relationship between Jews and the American Revolution as a whole. Around 100 of the 2,500 Jews in America at the outbreak of the Revolution served in the Continental Army or local militias. When examining the history of Jewish people, the Revolution marked the first time in millennia that Jews could serve alongside their Christian neighbors in battle, and even more amazing, for a common cause. It is worth noting that Jewish patriots were, in fact, at Lexington and Concord, joined up with the Sons of Liberty, died at Bunker Hill, suffered alongside General Washington's forces at Valley Forge. Jewish patriots like the widowed Abigail Minnis supplied the Continental Army, Georgia militia, and even French soldiers until Savannah, Georgia fell to the British. She faced constant threats from loyalists that tried to seize her property, yet she, like Phillips, believed so greatly in the cause of independence that she never wavered. With the liberties promoted in the Declaration of Independence, the American Jewish population had for the first time in centuries a chance to participate in a full, quote, American life like their Christian neighbors a reality that was uncommon or non-existent in Eurasian society. Well, that's it. A quick but enjoyable little gem of a story about the great mystery code that just baffled and stumped the British. No wonder the Americans won the war. Sorry to all my British listeners for all the digs and jokes. I love you all, and if it helps, I could make a French joke, but sadly, I don't speak surrender. And there go my French listeners. Either way, getting to hear a little bit more about my nation's Jewish patriots seems to round out the story of independence quite nicely. If you enjoyed this show and find yourself longing for even more DGMH, then join in the conversation at the DGMH Facebook group, where your favorite hosts and guests post content nearly every day. We dive into the lives of many mistresses on Mondays, and we really just bullshit a lot. Follow the show on Instagram to see how much I really do drink, and please consider leaving the show a great, hopefully five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Don't forget, there's plenty of great DGMH bonus content over on the Patreon page, with episodes available to supporters of all levels. Just follow the link in the show notes to get access to this exclusive bonus content. And every single contribution made by a Patreon supporter helps keep this show going and the booze flowing. As always, thank you for listening. Now let's rate this Mazel Tov cocktail on the scale of greatness. In terms of taste, it's sweet, it's strong, it works. It's not great, but it really isn't so bad. I'm going to give it three points for a sweet, fruity, grapey taste with a gin kick. It's cheap, too. Most Manischewitz products, and again, I'm not sure if I'm getting the pronunciation right there. I listened to it like three times, and it seems to come out different every time. Come in around $6 or less. And I wish I could say you couldn't beat that, but you can. There are plenty of good wines out there that are cheaper, but are they kosher? Fuck if I'd know, but five points for price. As for returnability, well, sure, hell, I might even see myself having another one of these tonight. Not my favorite, but I wouldn't say no. Three points for a possible return. Well, mazel tov to this mazel tov cocktail. That leaves the show with a modest 11 out of 18 points and four crowns. Tonight we raise a glass to all those Jewish American patriots that helped fight for the freedom we hold so dear. This was one hell of a story to research and one that I am really glad I now know. Up next, we get ready to wrap up Season 2 with our last great mind of the season, Catherine de' Medici. Uh, what the hell. Tune in next week and I will very quickly explain the whole whalebone thing. Cheers!
Oh, let's give it a try. Aclium. <laughs>